we really find out who God is as Trinity in the Son's human life among us, in His human actions and sufferings, in His words and gestures, in His relation to His Father, in His promises in the Holy Spirit. And so there is a Christological revelation of the Trinity in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And at the same time, there is not a Christological constitution of the Trinity as if the historical life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in his human nature were to constitute or newly enrich or alter the inner Trinitarian relations or identity of the persons in God. You know, so that's, it's a way of trying to engage with the modern uh, post-Hegelian tradition. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. If our listeners have ever studied the doctrine of the Trinity, then they may have come across at some point, sometime, uh, a very famous, maybe infamous in their own minds, but a very famous saying or maxim or rule. It's often called Rahner's Rule, named after Karl Rahner. And it goes something like this. The imminent Trinity is the economic Trinity, and the economic Trinity is the imminent Trinity. And this rule, though, of course, Rahner actually elaborates on it in all kinds of ways, uh, this rule has been a bit ambiguous, but also a rule that has been picked up by a variety of modern theologians. Uh, What do we mean, they asked, when we say the imminent is the economic and the economic is the imminent? And various interpretations of that rule have more or less occupied the minds of some of the most well-known modern theologians of the 20th century even. But that raises a question, and even a controversial matter, is Rahner right? And even moving beyond Karl Rahner, is it the case that uh, the economic is the imminent, the imminent is the economic? And what is this language about? Should we even continue to use it? Uh, Does it faithfully embody or does it betray some of the classical categories and grammar of the Trinity? In fact, we could go even a little bit further and ask a more theological question that even gets beyond the language itself. Are we conflating, say, the Trinity with history itself? Are we looking to what happens in history to actually constitute the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Well, these are deep questions, but as you can imagine, actually very relevant to our own day in which Trinitarian issues continue to be discussed, even debated, as all kinds of traditions look back and retrieve classical heritage and even debate as to uh, how modern theology not just should be interpreted, but whether it's faithful or actually strays from that classical Trinitarian heritage that we know so well, going all the way back from fathers in the East and the West, but also building up to medieval scholastics like Thomas Aquinas and others. Well, it's hard to think of someone better to come on the podcast and discuss these 
deep things than Thomas Joseph White. You may know him from some of his books. He's the author of a recent and new book called The Trinity on the Nature and Mystery of the One God. You may be familiar with one of his older books called The Incarnate Lord, A Thomistic Study in Christology. And older yet, another book called Wisdom in the Face of Modernity, A Study in Thomistic Natural Theology. Of course, he is rector at the Pontifical University of St. Thomas, the Angelicum. And I want to be the first to say that, you know, in reading his books, I think you will find not only depth there, but also a profound simplicity in the way that he makes Trinitarian theology a spiritual exercise. Thomas Joseph, thanks for joining us on the Credo Podcast. Thanks so much, Matthew. Great to be here. You know, I suppose we could just jump right into the weeds here and start talking about uh, Ronner's rule, but maybe we should back up because there's a story here. There is a background that goes back to modernity itself. And I think this is important to mention because I, I often find, especially as I'm teaching the Trinity, that students will just pick up a book from the 19th or 20th century and just assume all kinds of things, not realizing that a particular modern theologian may be indebted to certain Enlightenment thoughts or ideas. So let's just start by going way back all the way to someone like Immanuel Kant and uh, tell us... Uh, let's let's try to set the scene here because you've done this so well as you're kind of approaching that question, is there such a thing as an economic trinity? Very controversial question, of course, in light of modernity, but an important one. But maybe we need to set the scene a little bit, go back to the European Enlightenment. And let me ask you, how does someone like Immanuel Kant, how does this pretty radically change the discussion, uh, not just about God and, and Trinity, but even Christianity itself? Well, you ask a very difficult question to begin with, which I'm happy to try to answer. So what I argue in the book is that Immanuel Kant shifted the focus of conversation in continental Christian theology, first Protestant and Catholic, for a number of reasons. But a major one is that Kant sets out to demonstrate in the critique of pure reason that the human being has no real demonstrative knowledge of God, you might say, by philosophical argument or by nature, and that the mind cannot attain to any certitude of the existence of God, uh, about the existence of God, or regarding the divine attributes. So he obviously, you know, still leaves room for a practical moral orientation toward God as a presupposition of practical reason as one who will judge us based on the merits of our actions and allows us to live a just life motivated by the promise of things in the world to come. But he doesn't think there's a theoretical availability of the knowledge of God. He also doesn't think uh, that spiritual activity in the human being of intellectual life and moral life or willing volitionally uh, can be understood necessarily to entail immateriality. I mean, he's, uh, you might say, theoretically agnostic about the spiritual soul, the faculties of intellect and will, the idea that those faculties are uh, immaterial in, in part or um, fundamentally immaterial in their root, uh, in, implying a spiritual soul. The reason all this matters for Trinitarian theology is because of that first, you might say, move that uh, Kant makes 
if you are coming after him and the world around you academically has been influenced by him, it becomes much more difficult to talk about the divine essence or the divine nature, mm. uh, those attributes we might say that are common to the three persons of the Trinity, such as divine simplicity, immutability, eternity, uh, goodness, wisdom, and power, the divine nature in virtue of which God is one. And likewise, if you can't talk about the spiritual immaterial faculties philosophically, the intellect and the will, it becomes much more difficult to employ the traditional analogy from acts of the human mind, acts of knowledge and love, similitude or analogy of the eternal processions of the word and of the spirit of love that the Father eternally generates his immaterial word by an analogy to knowledge and spirates with the eternal word, the immaterial spirit of love. So you've lost the kind of purchase through philosophy on and the capacity to think analogically from our more prior knowledge of this world about the divine essence and about the eternal processions. So where does that leave us? That leaves us with uh, the fact that we need to find a new way to talk about the Trinity. And one way to do that is to think about the Trinity's imminent presence in history with us. And indeed, that is the move that's made uh, just after Kant in the work of Hegel and and others uh, in in various ways. Mm. You know, at one point you say there there really is like a crisis at at this point with Kant, a crisis of truth perhaps. And, And one of the ways you have presented Kant is to say, well, this crisis then has real implications for metaphysics. There's not this uh, confidence anymore in a stable metaphysic. Now, you just mentioned Hegel a second ago. Talk to us about how he reacts to Kant and in some ways rejects, but in other ways accepts or maybe assumes or embodies certain aspects of Kant. I'm no expert on Hegel, but what's interesting in looking at his Christology, which is what I I try to focus on in the book, is that on the one hand, Hegel is cautious about trying to go back behind Kant to the idea of retrieving classical metaphysical understanding of God. But he does want to find something about the essence of God in history with us. And and one of the ways he does this, I mean, you could say this, I'm simplifying, but there's like two moves that are crucial. The first move is on Hegel's part to say that God himself is in divine becoming through history. So God is himself, you might say, othering or rendering himself uh, present to himself or diversifying himself through historical modes of being as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as Son, he's an imminent historical process of identification with us. And the second move he makes is to say that the humanity of Christ, God's being human imports human properties and uh, activities and subjective passion into the God's own essence. So, for example, if Christ lives, suffers, and dies, then God, in his way of being son, in his mode of being a son with us, is undergoing in God's own life as God, qua God, you could say, in his divine nature, maybe. God is undergoing human, human existence, human suffering, human death. So there's a kind of um, development happening in God through his identification with us. Basically, Hegel seems to think that these are symbolic and representative ways that Christianity has given us that are privileged for encoding or speaking about the rational development of the life of God that we can access in a more pure way through philosophy and namely through Hegel's own philosophy, which you might say moves from representation to 
metaphysics of his kind or from dogma to philosophy. So there's a kind of, you know, strange rationalism pre- present in it and also a strange kind of Trinitarian mystification of, of enlightenment reason. Mm. Now, when we move to the modern period, uh, specifically modern theology, uh, there uh, it, at some point there seems to be this, well, what some have called a revival or renaissance of, of Trinitarian thought. All kinds of different names come to mind. Bart, Rahner, Balthasar, Moltmann, Pannenberg, and others. Now, this is complicated, isn't it? Because on the one hand, I mean, you were just describing Hegel's approach to um, to God and Trinity. But on the one hand, moderns seem to, to some degree, react against Hegel. But as they're saying, we are actually reviving the Trinity. But on the other hand, they still seem to be indebted to Hegel or even in continuity with him. Can you elaborate on this? Because I think that this is a, this is a crucial point. I, I think sometimes when modern theologians are reread today, uh, we think, well, surely they, they're not that radical. But maybe we're failing to connect the dots to how they still may be indebted in some ways, whether they know it or not. How, how would you elaborate on that? Well, okay, so this is a huge topic, and it's understudy. That's the first thing to say. I mean, this is a field of research. I don't think they're naive. I think there's a lot of self-conscious engagement with Kant and Hegel and Schelling and others uh, in the modern 20th century Trinitarian revival, both Catholic and Protestant authors. And there's work to be done on it. But it seems to me that two key texts are uh, Karl Barth's early work in Church Dogmatics, uh, Volume 1, Part 1, and then also Rahner's work on the Trinity, which I think is probably directly inspired by Barth, although slightly original. And, you know, there's also later Christological work that's done by Barth in Church Dogmax 4.1, and then Balthazar is very influenced by that in his theodrama. So there's, there's ways to, you know, engage with this question in terms of immediate text. But to go back to the big ideas, you know, look, I think both Barth and Rahner are reacting against Kant and Hegel on certain moves they make, but they're also using them strategically kind of against one another. So. Kant is prohibiting, in a way, the use of traditional divine names theology by which we try to ascertain divine attributes of God, uh, God's you know, sovereign goodness, wisdom, power, uh, transcendent uh, simplicity, unity, immutability, and so forth. And they're also nervous about both Bart and Rahner, very clearly are nervous about using the so-called 20th century term is psychological analogy for what you find in Augustine and other fathers and Aquinas about you know, the procession of knowledge and love as analogies for the eternal processions. So on the one hand, they're kind of accepting the Kantian settlement. So they want to use Kant in a way against, I think, Hegel to say that uh, God is not imminent to history. God is not identical with history. God is utterly unknown and transcendent of history unless he reveals himself. So now revelation becomes important again, mm-hmm. over and against kind of enlightenment rationalism. We need God to self-declare to manifest and, you might say, render himself present by grace if we're to know him. And so the, the kind of Kantian apophaticism or negative theology, the prohibition on knowledge, becomes the opportunity to become open to supernatural revelation over and against them like Hegel. But then with Hegel, you know, there's this idea that you really find God in the humanity of Christ. And this is an old idea you find like in Lutheranism and Luther's Heidelberg Disputation in 1518, that Bart very self-consciously repristinates back to. So, you know, we can't know 
the Kant's kind of right about that, but we can now know him because he's become human. It's specifically in the human nature of God that we see economically manifested who the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are. So it's, you might say it this way, God is unknown unless he reveals himself, but God gives himself to be known in the human actions, gestures, and sufferings of Christ in Christ's paschal mystery of his suffering, death, and resurrection. And there and only there, or there and in, in a privileged and distinctive way, can we really find who God is. So it's a very Christological, concentrated proposal for how we know the Trinity. So it seems very Christocentric, and it seems very radically based on Trinitarian self-revelation. But it's now understanding the Trinity in a more historical and Christological way, independently of, or at least to some, with some kind of um, moderate or even radical relativization of the classical divine names, divine attributes theology, and the classical psychological analogy or theory of eternal processions and relations in the Trinity. So you're, you're starting the whole thing out in a different way from Christ's historical life among us as indicative of the Trinity. And this gives rise through Bart and Rahner to all the different experiments that go on in this domain from figures like Penenberg and Moltmann to Balthazar and, and Jungle and, and, and people like this. Maybe we could zero in on Bart for a minute because, uh, as you just described, I mean, he, he takes this so far to even describe a divine becoming, uh, or maybe we could even put it in, in his own language of a, a freedom in divine becoming or a divine becoming in freedom, as he sometimes said. But as you mentioned, he he grabs on to, you know, a phrase like God with us, but this seems to be a, a focus on history that actually is, is going to define the Trinity, um, not just Christology, but even the Trinity itself. How, how do we think of Bart in terms of how he is conceptualizing everything from history to whether or not God changes? How is not just Christology, but the human nature and, and the incarnation specifically, how is that then defining the Trinity for Bart? Okay, well, now you just keep asking me massive questions about <laughs> mass, about uh, historically sophisticated authors of the highest echelon. So um, it's, they're fair questions. It's just really hard. And I mean, about this particular one, there's a, a tremendous amount of you know recent debate, and even debates going back to the '60s uh, when Bart was still alive, near the end of his life. So you get different readings. I mean, Thomas Torrance would be on one side, and someone like Eberhard Jungle on the other on this, these issues. Um, so, you know, Bart talks about things like the only God who is is the God who's with us, that we really know the Trinity is the God who manifests himself in Christ in history, and it's in his freedom to be with us and to relate to us freely in the gift of, of his self-revelation in Christ that God is understood by us in who God is. And you can sort of hear this going to one of two directions. Sometimes the text seems to say God is and who and would be who he is, even if he had never created or revealed himself to us. What we find in Christ is who God has been and will be eternally, you might say, transcendent of and independent ontologically of his creation. But sometimes it's more like Bart seems to say that the relation God establishes to man in the covenant with us in Christ and by grace, this relation he establishes us to us is constitutive of who God is. Mm. So God is, you might say, always already from eternity on the way toward incarnation and redemption. The Son is only ever the eternal Son of the Father insofar as he's the eternal son of the Father for incarnation and redemption and thus for covenant with man. 
And so God is, you know, in some sense, uh, only Trinity in view of or because of or as related to a derivative creation. And these are both, I think, plausible readings of Bart. In fact, I think he says both things, they somehow sometimes seem contradictory, but it's a tension in his larger work. And uh, he can be used as a resource to go either direction. But what Bart, Bardian tends to have done uh, in the 60s and 70s, if you look at, um, well, I mean, later than that, too. But if you look at, like, Pennenberg's systematic theology, if you look at Moltmann's explorations on Trinity and Incarnation, if you look at Eberhard Jungel's uh, God's Being and Becoming, th- these are, uh, and his uh, God is the Mystery of the World or Mystery of the Ground of the World. These books uh, are, are definitely exploring that, like, slightly more, I would call it gently, gently Hegelian side of, of Bart, uh, where God is always already, in a way, for, he is Trinitarian in nature, or in essence, but always, uh, you know, sort of in view of the created order. And that, so the, the economy is the economy of the Trinity, and God, the Trinity, is always, in a way, economic. And there's ways to read Rahner this way, too. Rahner's also similarly ambiguous, as is Bart on this. But you can read Rahner in, in orientation toward the idea that God is really the Trinity um, for the eternal speaking of the word in human nature, which precipitates creation and then harmonization and then God's harmonization so that God can be fully human. So now it looks like creation and incarnation and redemption are sort of inbuilt to who God is, uh, even if that's stated somewhat ambiguously in, in Rahner's work. Since you mentioned Rahner, let's focus on uh, his rule. When he says the imminent is the economic, the economic trinity is the imminent trinity, I mean, for listeners, if you go back and look at the context in which he says this, he is having a bit of a reaction against uh, scholastic theology before him. And uh, this brings him to this grammar that is so definitive for how he wants to structure everything from who the Trinity is, but also history itself. So talk to us a minute about how this rule, and even the language itself, economic and imminent, how does this come into play? And uh, I know this is a big discussion. We don't have to explore all of it here. But there is a bit of ambiguity because we start to see so many different interpretations, don't we, of this rule? Yeah, I mean, it's a central kind of thought to all these Trinitarian theologians. It's Rahner channeling Bart, I think. But then he's taken up ecumenically by German-speaking theology, Catholic and Protestant, and then some people think he doesn't go far enough in the application of the rule, so then they, they do their own riffs on it, and they come up with very different versions of it and variations of it and so forth. Okay, so look, the context is one that many people find completely legitimate. So the idea, he says, this is in the, in the English little collection of essays called The Trinity. You'd find it on, on page 22, where he starts talking about the notion. Uh, the book's just called The Trinity. So the background is he's saying, look, scholastic manuals of the 20th century essentially present the Trinity as an afterthought of Christian theology. All the emphasis is on the rationally accessible notions of God's essence and unity. So we talk about God's eternity, his goodness, his wisdom, and so forth. And then we show after that that the Trinity is, is a mystery that's not contrary to natural reason, but that also we can hardly understand that there can be the processions of the three persons in the eternal life of God in such a way that each possesses fully the divine essence and is holy and and simply God, and that each of the persons is truly distinct by relations of origin. And then we just declare it a mystery and we move to piety. But the problem with this is, A, it's not conceptually satisfying or sufficient, and B, 
it's non-experiential, it's dry, and it makes the Trinity remote to contemporary Christian piety. Mm. So what he wants is a more experiential way of thinking about the Trinity in light of the life of Christ as related to the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so it's more, you might say, Christologically focused or concentrated on the human nature of Jesus as expressive of the life of the Trinity in time or in history with us. And then he poses the Grund axiom, as it's called in German, or you were saying Rahner's rule, the ground, the fundamental axiom that the imminent Trinity is the economic Trinity and vice versa. And you can understand this in different ways. It could just mean that who God is as he reveals himself to us in the economy is who God truly is in himself eternally. And that would be fine. You know, I mean, you would just be saying the Trinitarian God who reveals himself to us in the world in Christ truly is who God is eternally in himself. We come to know who God is in himself eternally through Christ. That's great. If he's saying the imminent Trinity is an economic life, then he's saying something very much, very different and more radical, where he's saying that, you know, effectively the unfolding of the economy is in some way an expression of what the Trinity is or the Trinity expresses itself, God, the Trinity expresses himself as God through his historical interactions with us. Now, in the book, he does say things like that each of the persons has a real relation to us. He doesn't mean like a psychological relatedness of love and knowledge. He means there's some way in which metaphysically, God renders himself relative to us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each one distinctly in their persons in history. So it does seem like he's open to the idea that God is undergoing some kind of historical conformity to the world through the life of Christ. But this is itself a reading. I think it's the right reading, and I try to make that argument in the book. But if that is the direction he's taken, then things do become more interesting and radical. And that is the way he was taken in post-posterior interpretations. Which, you know, don't, they don't care. People like Jurgen Moltmann don't care what Rahner himself really believes right. as much as what, where, where, can they, where can we go with this constructively? So now we're looking at kind of inner Trinitarian history among us and with us as constitutive of the life of the becoming Trinity, God's own historical life with us. And that's the direction, you know, Moltmann wants to go in a more radical way in Trinity and the Kingdom. Balthazar does a different version of this in the theodrama with his whole notion of Trinitarian inversion, in which the relations to the persons are inverted or changed in some real sense during the time or while God is economically incarnate among us. Mm. Right? So these aren't Hegelian projects per se, but like over and against Hegel or after Hegel, they're taking up interesting suggestions from Rahner and Bart about God's uh, own, you might say, inner Trinitarian development that takes place through the economy. And then you end up with really quite distinct new notions that are not those of the classical tradition. Mm. You know, be whatever you think of that. It's just something else. It's, it's rather innovative and interesting. Now, I want us to, to transition here. You've, you've done a fine job of uh, really hard work. Uh, I mean, these are huge questions. And uh, to our listeners, I mean, just volumes and volumes of books have been written trying to articulate what we've just been talking about in the last 20 minutes or so. But we need to turn a corner here because having described all this, we, we need to ask the question, well, what are we to actually think about this? You know, what, what should we think of this language of economic and imminent? Should we retain it? Uh, if we do, are we, could we risk what you just said? You know, could we risk actually speaking of the Trinity as if there must be a change that takes place? within the Trinity in order to accommodate revelation and history. 
So let me just throw this back to you because, and again, I know that this is complicated. I mean, as you just mentioned, uh, on the one hand, you have a Moltmann, and then on the other hand, you have a Balsazar who's, they're both picking up this language, uh, but they're both using it and interpreting it in different ways. Um, why don't we just start with s- some of the more radical interpretations? And I would just love to hear your own uh, evaluation, critique. Take Moltmann, for example. I mean, I know at one point uh, you draw on that language of of theopanism to try to get at the heart of what is actually being compromised here with Moltmann. How would you say someone like Moltmann, if he's building off of this language, how is he actually compromising or forfeiting some core principles of classical Trinitarian thought? Get, to be honest, I think if I really get into analysis of Moltmann, it's going to take us too far afield. I mean, it, it, <laughs> it, you have to go through so many steps to get to understand him somewhat, you know, sufficient with sufficient sympathy or sufficient in, in, sort of integrity that you can criticize him that or you know constructively debate with him. That it just it would take more than a podcast, you know. In short, like this is a, I'm evading your question, but I'm explaining <laughs> why. However, I'm going to pivot and say I, I think the fundamental issue, not the only one, but but the fundamental issues I would raise are about presuppositions. I mean, is it really true that Trinitarian theology can forego a systematic reflection that's metaphysically informed? that's biblically informed yeah. on the divine unity and the divine essence, the divine nature common to the three persons. And my fundamental supposition of the book is that it cannot, that really Trinitarian theology has to go back and question the, the Kantian prerogative or presupposition that we cannot or should not begin with some kind of real investigation and study of the mystery of God's transcendent uh, life, essence, and unity that's common to the three persons. And then also I would question whether we really can get rid of the uh, analogy from acts of the mind, immaterial acts of knowledge and love. And so the relational origination of the word from the father and of the spirit of love from the father and the son, the so-called psychological analogy, it seems to me that's absolutely pivotal if we're going to understand the imminent life of the Trinity. So I basically question the, you know, the starting points. And then with regards to a number of these esteemed theologians who are, you know, in their own way, extremely well-intentioned, I think in the realization of what they present, yes, it's true that one of the problems is that creation is no longer seen as utterly relative and derivative from the creator. And so it looks like you have what I call, what actually Eric Chavara calls theopanism, that God is constituting the world, but is also self-constituted through it. And in some sense, then related to it in such a way as to be constituted by his unfolding self-exertion in creation. So, right, there's a kind of pan- pantheism or theopanism in which the Trinity is constituted through the creation or engagement with it. But I'm also just as worried about divine unity, mm. because I think unless you have a, the common essence of the three persons, of the shared uh, nature and life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you can't sufficiently maintain a theology of the transcendence of the unity and of the creative agency of the Trinity as the one God who gives being and grace to all things and who is not constituted by his creation, but who constitutes or gives being to us gratuitously in the orders of nature and grace. Mm. So I'm, I'm really defending the classical tradition in some of its most fundamental commitments and saying that I think it can, you can do a lot of, of good in addressing the, the concerns or the interests of the modern theologians by taking the classical principles and moving forward, 
rather than severing them altogether or rupturing, I think there's a bit of that has happened uh, the last 150 years in Trinitarian theology. Mm. I guess that brings up the elephant in the room, right? What do we do with Rahner's language, economic eminence? Now, you make, I think, a really important critique here to say, you know, we may be better off to actually put that language aside and go back, return to the classical way of designating the mystery of the Trinity, which comes back to eternal processions and temporal missions. Why do you think that is a better, more strategic move? Yeah, so that's an idea that's been proposed prior to myself by Gilles Emery and American theologian Bruce Marshall, and I take that idea up and develop it in their stead, uh, hopefully in ways they would appreciate. And, you know, the basic idea here is the tradition is not broken. Let's not try to fix it. This idea of a problem of two trinities or a trinity in two modes, economic and imminent, is a modern problem that's maybe a false problem. There's only one trinity, and it's the trinity that's transcendent and imminent to itself, the imminent life of God being Trinitarian. So there is no economic trinity. I mean, it's a false problem, a false affirmation. Say there's a Trinitarian, uh, an economic trinity, and then we have to somehow reconcile or understand the relationship between either two trinities or the trinity in two modes. It's just the one mode of being of the transcendent life of God that is the imminent eternal life of the trinity. But then if you hold that view, does that mean that God is unknown in the economy? Well, no. The classical idea of the economy, uh, that God reveals himself in the economy, uh, makes use in the medievals, the high medievals, all the way back. It, it comes from Augustine in the De Trinitate, and then the high Western medievals develop it. This idea of God's eternal processional life and his temporal missions. So God is an eternal processional life of Trinitarian knowledge and love of the Word and the Spirit that proceed from the Father. And at the same time, in the, what was what are called the divine missions, God sends the Son into the world. We're talking about divine sending when we talk about missions. And the Father and the Son send the Spirit into the world in such a way that the processions, the eternal life of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is truly pres- rendered present to us and revealed among us in its interprocessional life. So we really do know in the economy who God is imminently, the imminent Trinity, the life of God in his eternal life is truly revealed to us. It's revealed to us in the temporal missions. So instead of talking about an economic trinity or a temporalization of God, it's, I think, better to talk about God sending the Son into the world and sending the Spirit into the world in such a way that who God is eternally is truly rendered present to us and made accessible to us. Aquinas defines a divine mission as uneternal procession with the addition of a grace that renders the Trinitarian procession present in a new way. Which means it just is the eternal life of God, the person of the Son and the person of the Spirit, now rendered present in their eternal life in virtue of a new grace that makes that eternal life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit available or accessible to us through faith, through hope, through charity. Uh, and this seems to me like the right way to think that goes back to Augustine, writing against Arianism, that's developed in a beautiful and profound way by people like Aquinas and, and Bonaventure. And that has tremendous promise for thinking about God's presence in history in our contemporary world. Now, you've mentioned Thomas Aquinas, and I think one of the more brilliant moves you make is to give certain Thomistic qualifications or or points of contact. And uh, you list, I believe, about five of them. 
Let me just share some of these with our listeners, and then I do want to give you the last word and, and ask you to explain why these are so important. But for our listeners, listen to some of these five points. Number one, we encounter the mystery of God's internal processions of word and spirit only ever in the economy in virtue of the missions. And the missions are the processions with the addition of an added effect. Uh, that's very similar to, to what you just said. Uh, number two, therefore, we can understand the economic activity of the Trinity only in light of the eternal communion of persons in the Trinity and their transcendence and unity of action. Number three, the three persons of God act as one in virtue of their shared nature and life as God, but also act as persons. We need not posit any opposition of these two ideas. And then number four, we can say that all activity of the three persons reflects Trinitarian action in both a personal, communal way and in a natural way as divine action. And then last, number five, if Christ acts, he does so only ever as both God and man by two natures, operations and wills, divine and human. I want to give you, Thomas Joseph, the last opportunity here to speak into this because as I was thinking over all five of these, number five, they're all important. But in light of what we've been talking about, the influence of modern theology, even to this day, and I think you see it even in in contemporary authors on the Trinity, uh, if we're going to avoid some of those pitfalls, number five seems really important. If Christ acts, he does so only ever as both God and man by two natures, operations and wills, divine and human. I mean, right away, this keeps us, it seems to keep us from, say, conflating the Trinity with history or perhaps projecting just anything and everything in the incarnation just onto the imminent life of, of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Maybe you want to elaborate here, and, and I would just love to hear from you, why is this fifth one is, is a closing to mystic qualification. Why is this so crucial, not just to, to understand the incarnation, but to, the, to understand the Trinity in the right way? You know, these, you've in a way gone to the heart of the book. and In some sense, the, the book was written so that these, I mean, it's too strong to say, but these five kind of ideas on pages 572 and 574 could be articulated. But Look, I mean, what I'm doing there is I'm trying to avoid a number of false oppositions. So I'm saying the transcendent Trinitarian God truly reveals who he is in time without being constituted by time. The persons of the Trinity verse really act in unity and are truly distinct personally. When they act in unity, they truly manifest who each one is personally in his distinct mode of being God or his distinct way of being God. So when they act, they act not only personally, but they also act you might say, in their communion with one another, and that communion is revealed. So, you know, I'm trying to get overcome some false bifurcations or oppositions. But then in the last one, what I'm really trying to say is that when the eternal son acts, suffers, when he acts or suffers in his human nature, it does reveal his identity as the son. And sometimes he acts in such a way as to really manifest his deity, his lordship, like when he does something miraculous by the power of God in him. When he does this, he does this with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. If he suffers something human, it's only he who suffers humanly, even though as Lord and as God, he's one with the Father and the Spirit, because only he is human, even if he's also God. He's one with the Father and the Spirit as God. He alone is human as the one who became man. 
I'm trying to look at how in the mystery of Christ's two natures, the Trinity is truly revealed, but the and the human nature can be, you might say, the vehicle in which the life of the Trinity in Christ is revealed without the human nature and its historical life, suffering, and death coming to constitute who the Trinity is. Mm. Right? So we really find out who God is as Trinity in the Son's human life among us, in his human actions and sufferings, in his words and gestures, in his relation to his Father, in his promises in the Holy Spirit. And in, so there is a Christological revelation of the Trinity in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And at the same time, there is not a Christological constitution of the Trinity as if the historical life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in his human nature were to constitute or newly enrich or alter the inner Trinitarian relations or identity of the persons in God. You know, so that's, it's a way of trying to engage with the modern uh, post-Tegelian tradition uh, and take on the, the challenge of seeing God revealed in Christ, the Trinity revealed in the, in the life, death, and, and resurrection of Christ, without thinking that that life, death, and resurrection of Christ newly constitutes God in some way. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.